0: Welcome to Thames Festival Trust Podcasts for the London's Lost Village Project. In this podcast, Gary Hunter speaks about
1: his time as a tenant of Trinity Boy Wharf and his research into the area's history. This is an oral history interview with Gary Hunter, conducted by myself, Lara Short, for the Thames Festival Trust's Heritage Project, London's Lost Village. Gary, could you please state your full name and date of birth?
0: Yes, I'm Gary Hunter. I was born on the 21st of August, 1963.
1: Can you start by describing your childhood upbringing, early life?
0: Yeah, I was born and raised in South Shields, which is the port of the River Tyne. My father was in the Merchant Navy before I was born, so he travelled the world. as a massive influence on my own life. So when I left school, age 15, I studied marine engineering for a year, but there weren't any jobs at that time in 1979. So I ended up working in a photographic lab, acquired those skills, uh, left there after a few years, then became a professional photographer for about 25 years.
1: And um, what can you tell me about your family and your
0: um, father and his maritime history? Yes, well he, uh, he started off working on the collier, so he'd be bringing coal down from Tyneside to the Thames, and then progressed on to working on much bigger ships, travelling all over to South America, Canada, South Africa, through the Suez Canal a lot, off to India, I think the only place he didn't go was Japan. So uh, he saw a lot, and he said it, he was paid £7 a month, no matter how long the month was, so February was good. <laughs> if you had a long month you, you were getting uh, not, not getting so much sort of return on that but also the other side of my, um, my family history so my maternal line so my uh, maternal grandfather, uh, grandmother her, her father uh, was Captain Mitchelson of Durham and he had his own ship called the SS Effective so he was a steamship captain and he sailed that ship down to northern Italy to have his photographs taken by a society photographer I've still got them in fact they're here so you can see these were taken in the 1890s by a photographer called uh, Shuto in uh, Genoa. So I'm just wondering if the, you know, the etymology of that name has it, become what people uh, term a shoot, a photographic shoot, a shoot Uh
1: When did you move to London and why? What was the journey of that?
0: Yeah, so I was working at the photographic lab getting £30 a week and uh, I took the afternoon off and, and turned up at uh, Rick Sanchez in Newcastle just walked in there asked if i could take some photographs he gave me a can of brown ale and said you got to move to london so it was kind of his fault i'm down here so i came by a sort of a long route really i, m- I moved down to cambridge i uh, lived at a recording studio where i was the in-house photographer then i went to art college in swansea i lived a little bit in north yorkshire and then I, I came down to london eventually got here two weeks after that big storm that ripped through the southeast and knocked all the trees down so i lived in a squat in clapham for quite a few months and then got some work with Advertising photographers for the experience as an assistant and then slowly build up my own work.
1: And what was your um, move to um, your studio space in in Trinity Boy Wharf and um, do you think that growing up near Water and Docks had a a big impact or a relationship with um, your your um, relationship
0: with this area? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was working as a professional photographer, it was uh, I started off in central London having my own studios in the early 90s because nobody wanted commercial property then. There'd been a big crash. And the studios were, you know, quite big and very cheap. And over the next 20 years, they got to be smaller and more expensive to the point that I couldn't afford to be in the West End anymore. So that was part of the reason I moved here. I'd done a few bits of work to do with Open House so we we took over MB Studios at Trinity Boy Wharf and did site specific responses and then Boiler House 1954 came up for rent. Uh, So with John Burton we came up with this idea that I would take that on but also run a curatorial program with Trinity Boy Wharf Trust. So I was bringing artists from places like Morocco, Iraq, New Zealand, Venezuela all coming in. And doing work which responded to the idea. So, they weren't necessarily all artists, some of you worked with um, a bacteriologist, so we actually put uh, glass plates in the Thames mode and created these abstract patterns. So, it was, it was kind of an experimental kind of process, really, with, with each artist. So, I did that um, for quite a few years. But then, with all the development going on, the dust and the noise uh, in 2018, I decided uh, I needed a change, really. So, I, I moved over to the other side of the A13. To the Aberfeldy Estate, and I work with Poplar Harker Housing Association. I set up a community pub, named after Tommy Flowers, who was a locally born engineer. So, because of my background in engineering, I'm still very, very interested in that. I like, I like where art and engineering meet, art and science meet. In fact.
1: And how would you describe um, Trinity Werewolf and its um, community when you first discovered the area? And could you just clarify the years that you were um, when you. Uh, studio
0: space here. Yeah I would would say like many people I found this place completely by accident I just came down orchard place in about 1995 found the diner and was intrigued by the place and what was going on so I started visiting quite a lot and you know seeing the exhibitions and things that were happening you know uh, Andrew's kinetic work I was particularly interested in and then got to know John and I think we did our first show here in 2009 and then I took over Boiler House 1954 just towards the end of 2011 and I left in spring 2018 so seven and a half years I was here really yeah. and uh, it was great to have the support of the trust so we quite often do a, a partnership with a university um, one even in Denmark so what we did was we took the inspiration of Michael Faraday and we created a, a two meter high Faraday cage made, made in a sort of egg shape so it was referencing different parts of his work and then we installed a Tesla coil inside of that so that was made from an old particle accelerator a drain pipe and a tire so Denmark are way ahead of us on upcycling so it's Roskilde University which is near Copenhagen and the best equipped fab lab I've ever seen in my life so they have um, big sort of 3d printers actually making houses from quick quick drying uh, cement or concrete so that was good, so that was a very good collaborative uh, exercise and I was just having huge problems getting funding from the Heritage Fund, you know, it was me and John were like tearing our hair, I think, why are they not supporting anything we've done? So I, I got, I got invo- invited to one of their open days and I made the point that I could not get funding to do this Faraday project. I had to go to Denmark to get it made. And after that, I think they sort of said, oh, well, we better give them some money.
1: How do you think the area has changed or evolved? Um? since the year since you first came to the area
0: well massively yeah i mean uh so we've been doing glassblowing workshops here i don't know if you know about that i'll talk a bit more about that in, in a minute so i hadn't been here for two years so when i drove down orchard place i didn't recognize it these kind of pseudo sort of dutch kind of skyscrapers it's all very odd but at least it's settled down the noise is gone the dust isn't here i mean there's still disruption in terms of things being built but i think it's just too much development there's you know Trinity Boy Wharf now feels sort of surrounded, you know, but it's, uh, there's a lot of things kind of looking over it. It always used to be a sort of hidden away secret place, which I think a lot of people liked. But saying that, I think um, I think it's back on track, really. That's what I thought, yeah. So um, it seems to now be more refocused on the arts. I think there was a lot of commercial work going on here. Uh, it was diluting the sort of creativity a little bit. So I was pleasantly surprised when I came back and saw... So, um, saw how good it was again so it was almost you know when i like when i first found it i think really
1: yeah yeah you say that um the what possibly something that um attracted you was maybe that it was isolated and mm. felt slightly cut off would you say that that was something that was appealing to you when you first found yeah, it
0: yeah but what was also enjoyable was inviting other people who'd never heard of it either even when we were doing the blowing sessions people that lived in bethnal green or even parts of newham had never been here you know so it's still a lot of people do not know about it and that's part of the joy is kind of sharing the discovery in a way
1: why do you think it has become such a creative hub and such a central location for creatives
0: well that's down to the the vision of Eric Reynolds isn't it from the absolute beginning so um, I mean he was doing regeneration before it was even the word <laughs> so it's, it's through him really that uh, it, it's happened and I think it's an exemplar of how things should be done so I just talk a little bit about the cargos project which is the current Heritage Fund uh, Medium, medium-sized grant uh, fund we're doing at the moment. So the idea of that is to is to investigate the commonality of innovation, trade and science between the Tyne and the Thames and the latter half of the 19th century. So obviously there was kind of lots of, you know, traffic of, of ships coming down. So the coal would come down and then sand would go back and then the sand facilitated the glass industry there. So I think the sand was mainly picked up in Norfolk, but it was kind of on the way back to, uh, to Newcastle. So we've been working in... Um, a building there that was first first created in uh, the 1860s and it was kind of added on so that was commissioned by William Armstrong who was uh, a very big industrialist but also a, a philanthropist as well so he would uh, look after his workers very well so in the east side of Newcastle um Jesmond Dean there's he built an old well it wasn't an old banqueting hall it was a brand new one so he built a banqueting hall there firstly to um that innovators like Michael Faraday, Joseph Swan, would go there and and demonstrate their new discoveries. Uh, but also, it was open to his, you know, his twenty five thousand workers could go there and had afternoon tea and take their children onto onto the dean. And when he died, he um, he had no children, so he left a covenant that it was to be solely used by the people of Newcastle. Unfortunately, the council I think that they own it, so there's a current battle to respect that covenant which make, means the hall should only be used for the furtherment of arts, education, science, and edu- uh, science and uh, literature. So, um, it's been occupied by two sculptors for the last 35 years, so, you know, um, they're not moving until something's done. So, uh, we're just in negotiation now with the council to try and get it properly recognised as a historic centre but also as a, as a creative hub as well. So, you know, Trinity Boy Wharf is the perfect example of the site when we're looking at this building. So, you know, the influence is huge. So um, we're looking at that really. And and the other main site for the Cargoes project is Trinity Boy Wharf. So being on not just the Thames, but also the River Lee, the colliers would go up further to Cody Dock, uh, drop off the coal, and then that was distributed around all of the big um, coal powered uh, gas you know the the big old kind of um, holders that you see up and down so um it's it's unveiled quite a few things that we weren't expecting um and it's it's also still it's got a legacy as well already so one of the things that we did was we commissioned the creation of a mobile glass studio which is basically a furnace made out of an old kiln so you know it was just made out of old pieces so that that goes with our sort of ethos of using up materials that would would go to waste anyway uh, so that's been uh going up to Draper's Academy which is in Harold Hill in Havering, uh, one of the parts of London that I really think doesn't get much cultural engagement. So the six formers and the year ten and eleven uh, kids have been learning how to blow glass. So what we've been doing is getting them to work on you know a collaborative chandelier which was then shown in a shopping mall in Romford. So it was this kind of shape that they were learning how to blow and then inside each one they had a message their kind of hopes for the future their wishes because it was just coming out of COVID and we, we thought people needed, <laughs> needed a bit of kind of good news about their lives so um, so it's been hugely successful very supportive um, technology department there the head's great and he's talking about the other 800 kids now want, want to be able to learn how to blow glass so it's fantastic and um, Gary Banks who is head of technology there he said it, it's, it's the best thing is that you know the kids go home at night, they pick up a glass and now they know how it's made. Whereas you just used to take that for granted before, you know, you just didn't, didn't know how it was made. And I think it's, it's, it's the same with the photography we've been doing. So we've been looking into 19th century photographic processes. This is called wet collodion. So you, you'll recognize the, the sort of style from the documentation of the Native Americans by Curtis. So that woman is not a Native American, but she looks like she could be one. So depending on the format of the camera, they're either 10 by eight size or five by four. So I'm actually using my old cameras that I used to use when I was an advertising photographer. So I've got them out of the cases and I'm using them again. So if it wasn't on tin, it would be a positive, but on glass, unless you put it on the dark background, it doesn't show up, you see. But you can't take a copy of this. You can't print from it. So the the glass negative was the next stage. And then Joseph Swan, who I mentioned earlier, who was um, a big scientific innovator, you know, Joseph Swan of Newcastle, but then he set up a, a big electrical company in London and then he merged with Edison. So really these shapes of the light bulbs are to do with that. So that was the incandescent light bulb of 1878. The first one to use a tungsten filament, if you can believe it, they were using bamboo before then. I mean, the light couldn't have been on for more than 10 seconds with a bamboo filament, could it? So he was working with Armstrong in Northumberland at uh, Armstrong's country residence called Cragside. So that was the first private residence in the country to be lit by electric light. Not just that, but it 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 was from power that was created by water. So there was a big Archimedes screw there, and it still works like that. I think in London the first street was Electric Avenue in Brixham. That was the first one to be lit by uh, electric lights, which is probably why it's called that, isn't it? So that exchange of ideas is absolutely fascinating. So Michael Faraday would visit the Northeast quite a lot. So um, when he was an apprentice, he worked for Humphrey Davy, who designed one of the lamps that was used in coal mines. Uh, So he he would go up there and investigate pit disasters, but he would also demonstrate his new innovations. And he worked for Trinity House, so of course he'd be going around all the lighthouses, introducing new lighting systems, new lenses. So he, he, was, a, he was a regular visitor to, to the North. And in fact, he was, he was almost born, born up there in Castle Eden, which is in Lancashire, but his parents moved down to and Castle a year before he was born. But I think he still had that Northern grit and integrity about him, you know, which was passed on from his family.
1: Yeah, what you've just explained, I think, is a great example of this, but to what extent would you say that the area has um, retained and and kept really its um, heritage and and history, and uh, maybe in terms of industrially, like you've just explained, or architecturally, or, yeah, Yeah. can you talk about that? The
0: lighthouse just next to us is an absolute prime example, isn't it? There's no need for a lighthouse on a river. So that was the experimental lighthouse of Faraday. Apparently there was two at one time, so you must have been using them for different things. And, you know, uh, Gem Finer's piece in there, long player, it just suits it so well already, I think. It's uh, fantastic to go in there at the weekend and especially go up the top and hear the sort of resonance of the sounds going around. So it's, it's you know, it's great to be using an old building for a creative installation, which references so many things about what's going on around here.
1: How do you think the area will continue to change and evolve in the future
0: well i think trinity boy wharf is protected i think it was a 120 year lease that was taken out with tower hamlets for a pound i believe as long as it was uh, concentrating on uh, promoting and nurturing the creative industries which it still is so i think there must be you know 95 years left on that so i don't think it's an immediate danger but We'll just have to see how they, they can't develop any more, can they? Well, maybe the other side of the river, Lee. That that'll be next, and suddenly we're totally surrounded. You know, it's difficult to say.
1: How can you describe the current relationships between the communities here at um, Trinity Beowulf?
0: You mean City Island?
1: Yeah, gem- generally more around. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Think. So when we were doing the glass blowing, we did have quite a few people coming from City Island, and it was a very international group. Really, we had people from France, Italy, Romania. China, they've all moved into City Island so I think it retains that sort of cosmopolitan flavor that has always been the kind of thing that you get around Docklands and you know big rivers so where where I'm from in South Shields for example it's got a big uh, Yemeni community and that was because a lot of the ships used to pass through the Suez Canal uh, the reason there's a lot of um, Bangladeshis, especially from the area of Selet, which is on a big river in Bangladesh, is because they were working on the ships and then their families would follow them over. So you get these groups of people from other countries settling around docks. And I think that's that's still kind of solid and that's that's going to work. And mentioning City Island, that was the location of the thames Plate glassworks you see in the latter half of the 19th century, which is the biggest employer around here. But what is also of interest is that a lot of the workers that there were migrants from the northeast, so they had the glass making skills you see and they moved down here. Worked at City Island. So I, I was talking to an archaeologist who specializes in the history of glass and he did some work there. You see he was actually commissioned by Ballymore to look into it. So he found some of the old pits that they used to use for you know for the molten glass and the, and the furnaces and things like that. But um, it, just, it just seems to have gone up too quickly that it's just like an instant community you know whereas this one has grown organically. I think that's the difference really it's you know i mean I, I don't know how many people are living there it must be five six thousand if you include orchard place and they're still going up aren't they you know so we'll see it's going to have a massive impact on the area like where do people park you know i can see where the barriers have gone up here to keep everyone out because there's very little um thought gone into that i think really but you know it's it's, it's a good walk now through to you know um canning town station across the bridge and i think there's plans to make other bridges and connect this place up because it's really sad that you can't walk along the thames path and you've got to keep coming in and you know on the south it's actually really easy to do it but this side of the river it's it's interrupted by private developments and i don't think that's right really i think the riverside should be public access the whole way along the river without a doubt
1: could you yeah go back and elaborate a bit more on your knowledge of the thames plate glass works
0: yes so that was the that was the first company to really make big sheets of glass you know for uh for shop windows and things like that and um I, but they were only around for 50 or 60 years i'm not quite sure what happened i mean maybe there was competition from abroad but there was also a lot of um smaller sort of glassworks. i think further up the river lee they were making bottles and things like that so they were quite specialist in what they did so i think each glassworks would do one thing in particular they might do cut glass you know for for wine glasses, or they might do lenses for lighthouses, you know, things like that. So um, I know a little bit about the Thames Blade Glassworks, but uh, not a huge amount. David Dunworth is the man to speak to about that, really. He's the archaeologist that I uh, got the information from. He lives in Brighton. You might be able to get hold of him. Um,
1: c- yeah, could you tell me a bit more about your um, research and kind of how you were compelled to research um, Trinity, Boyle, and Lemouth, Peninsula and Bow Creek?
0: Yeah, because I think it's a little bit overlooked, isn't it, really? And you know, not a lot of people know about the River Lee. Quite an important... Um, well, there's, there's quite a few bits of it, isn't it? There? There's R- River Lee, then there's the Lee, the Lee Navigation as you go further up. But it goes all the way to, into Hertfordshire, doesn't it? So I think there's a lot of industry along here, not just the Thames Play Glass Works, but going all the way up. And um, I, th- I think it needs to be known about a lot more, really. You know?
1: And could you tell me a bit more about your, um, your projects... Um, and how you've been able to combine the heritage of the area with your own
0: work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, yeah. So I think the, the the Faraday Cage project was the first one where I really you know, completely absorbed heritage, but thinking back, it has actually been a strong element of a lot of things I've done before I've even thought about it. You know, I've always been interested in history and how it impacts our lives today, really. So, for example, the Faraday Cage technology is what you have in a microwave oven now, so it stops the electricity going out. But from the other side of a Faraday cage, it's also built in an airplane, so it stops the lightning from coming in. And even when they're selecting a new Pope in the Vatican, all of the bishops or you know dignitaries are actually sitting inside of a Faraday cage, so nobody can hear what's going on. You know, So it's like a it protects sounds and information. And about even when uh, David Davis was the Brexit secretary, his briefcase was a Faraday cage, so nobody could see what was in there. It's probably only a cheese sandwich, wasn't it, you know, or something.
1: And why do you think it is so important for the heritage of this area to be preserved?
0: Because I think there was so much innovation going on here, you know, with people like Faraday, Tommy Flowers I was talking about, you know, so I'll talk about him a little bit. So he was born and raised on the Aberfeldy estate. Uh, He was the son of a bricklayer. Uh, His whole life he worked for the post office, especially in the the research uh, side of that. And when he was first, doing work at Bletchley Park. I think it was Alan Turing that um, took a shine to him and got him in, but because most of the people there were Oxbridge and he had a Cockney accent, he wasn't taken seriously, you see, so I see him as a bit of a champion for uh, people from you know, working class backgrounds like myself, to look at somebody like that and think, oh well, anything's possible if you put your mind to it, really, you know. So he designed Colossus, which was the first semi-programmable computer for Bletchley Park, so it would speed up the code breaking, so it would be done in real time, because sometimes it was 10 or 12 hours behind so they've actually rebuilt that it is enormous it uses about one and a half thousand um, photo valves you know so it was reading it through um through paper, uh, punch paper and then translating it into uh into a printout in english so i think he's, he's an important uh, person to uh to celebrate so we we commissioned two things for the pub um in, in the spirit of traditional pubs we uh we had a an etched and sunblasted window made but it was showing the mechanics of Colossus so it looks like a normal pub window when you look at it but when you look really closely you can actually see it's not and then we also commissioned a mural of Tommy on the side on the gable end uh, and the artist who did that was Jimmy C who did the Bowie portrait in Brixton that became a big site of homage so he, he's also another innovator as a street artist so what he, what he uses uh, he's really a spray paint fontalist so he does lots of like little dots so when you close up it's abstract and you stand back and then you see the whole picture. It's all made up of dots. So we, we you, so through my community interest company, which is called Fitzrovia Noir, named for Fitzrovia because that's where I spent a lot of time when I was a photographer and also where I live. We encourage innovation in arts, but also across all kinds of creative uh, practice, you know, whether you're a scientist or a mathematician, we like to work with anybody who's trying out new things. And then through setting up the pub that has been cited as a, let's get this right, the Plunkett Foundation who specialise in rescuing pubs, uh, dis- describe the Tommy Flowers as a new model of community engagement uh, using creativity. So actually got invited to the House of Lords uh, to actually you know, say thanks for setting it up. So what we're doing now is we're, we're trying to sort of not repeat that model but use that sort of format to do things in different parts of the country. So we're talking to people in the northeast about that, about um, reanimating empty shops in industrial areas where there used to be coal mines or shipyards or things like that, and now there's nothing, you know. So I think that the problem is in these industrial areas, quite often everybody worked at that one place or for that one company, and when that closes down, it's a big problem. So I mean, most of the East India docks have now been reclaimed, I mean it's where Tower Hamlets Council is. But where the where we where we set up the Tommy Flowers pub, you used to be able to look down and see the wall of the docks with the containers above it. You see, so people were bringing in old fo- family photographs, and we were learning a lot about a lot about the history, which actually goes back to, believe it or not, the mid 14th century. So the first um, well, I mean, people still use this terminology. They still say the governor of the manor. It's a kind of East London thing, isn't it? Governor and the manor. But he was actually the governor of the manor. He was the Bishop of Winchester, William Wycombe, who's um, remembered for the quote, manners maketh man. So he was the king's architect, you see, and he was given this land, which was basically marshland, and it stayed like that for a long time. And I think the Black Prince used to come here and select wood for his ships. So things were going on in the 14th century around here. But it wasn't until there was a Scottish engineer who'd worked for the East India Company called Hugh McIntosh. He drained the land around here, you see. And then he started developing it. And that's why a lot of the streets on the other side of the A13 are named after parts of Scotland because of him. And then he sold the land to John Abbott, who was a chemist, and that's why you have Abbott Road. So I'm, inter- I'm very interested in how street names are embedded in history and then forgotten about. You know, some, not a lot of people would know why it was called Abbott Road. Or Orchard Place apparently you had a lot of apple trees down here at one time, you know, in about 10 pubs. I mean, it must've been a raucous kind of place, you know
1: yeah I think street names are a very kind of prominent thing, especially around the around the Docklands with um, you know being named after um, parts of its history yeah. um, How do you feel about the regeneration of the Docklands more widely um, not just the mm. this island in particular
0: I mean I think some of it's been done with sensitivity, other areas have just been completely knocked down, and I think um, Around Silverton now has got the go-ahead for something big going on. That's that's been very disappointing. What's been going on there? There's been things that have happened and then just completely fallen flat. But I think it's just at the mercy of these big developers, really, who are quite often in in league with not just local government but uh, you know central government. There's a lot of backhanders going on. It depends who's in control. It's a very mysterious kind of thing that they're doing. And even if they have a, an S one o six agreement, they don't always honour it. So. I don't know if you know, but S106 is the agreement between the developer and the local community that they will provide a community centre or a sculpture or something like that. But they don't always do it. And they have this system of um, segregating the social housing from the expensive housing. So they have these things called poor doors. where If you're living in the social housing, you go around to the back where there's no light and then you can't use a swimming pool and stuff like that. So I'm really against that sort of development. I think if you're going to develop an area, all of the amenities should be available for everybody without doubt.
1: Do you feel that there are enough amenities um, around this island in, in the area?
0: Not for the amount of people, no. I mean, w- is there a community centre or is Trinity Boy Warfield? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think um, Ballymore are doing much, are they, in terms of outreach? Do they have to? I don't know what their S106 agreement is. I mean, they, they are hosting the English National Ballet, I think, there, um, and there's something to do with the film school, but I'm not quite sure of whether that's just offices or it's, you know, where they're actually producing stuff, I'm, I'm not too sure, really, yeah.
1: Um, when you walk around the area, obviously, with um, kind of having done research about, about the history of the area, do you get a sense of how you imagine it to have, to have looked and to have been? Um
0: yeah, well, that, you've reminded me of something now, which is good, so I, I did go to a talk at the Albright Gallery, you know, which is, and the artist called Richard Wentworth, I don't know if you know him, he was in conversation, and I got talking to him afterwards, um, about these ghost signs that have gone up you know the signs that are down orchard Place saying you know may the whale orls and things like that they're all false you know the developers put those up sometimes in the wrong place and what I thought was really funny was when I was still here in 2018 they was, there was just starting to put the hoardings up and develop everything they had these kind of um, industrial words like really big on there and one of them was forged and I was thinking well yes but forged in another kind of way you know so I've got a photograph of that somewhere I'll have to dig it out
1: do you still feel like this is London's lost village?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I still think it's got a lot of integrity. There's a lot of things going on here that uh, wouldn't happen anywhere else, I think, if it wasn't for Trinity Boy Wharf, I wouldn't have done so many things, you know. I would have maybe still been a struggling photographer, you know, never really... So for me, it was absolutely crucial being here because it opened up my... Um, my possibilities so much as what I could do. Things I hadn't really thought about. So it was very inspirational to be here and, and learn about the history, see what everybody else was going on uh, to do and to be inspired by that. And also to get to know a lot of people here as well. So um, some people were very encouraging about me being here. Yeah.
1: Do you think this is kind of as much as the area can be developed you know, it's reached its kind of point in a way.
0: Well, I don't think Trinity Boy Wharf can expand sort of outwards, but it maybe could go up a little bit. Maybe we can block out those big towers by building something big here, you know? And I think there are ideas maybe to develop the English National Opera building into something else, expand the school. I don't quite know what's going on, but it's always moving on. I don't think this place stays still, does it? It's always evolving, and I think that's that's really interesting.
1: And how would you compare, kind of, um, Trinity Boywolf, and the rest of um, the island to other parts along the river, other other um, regenerated parts of the Docklands.
0: Yeah, I think they lack like soul, don't they, really? Yeah, if you, especially if you go further down on this side. I'm not so familiar with the other side, I have to say, with, the, with uh, Bermondsey and places like that. But if you go further along down towards Raynham, I mean, it's just development after development and they seem quite isolated, you know, they're sort of built and, okay, there might be a DLR nearby, but that there's no sort of sense of community people are kind of in these big blocks but I think they just keep themselves to themselves and associate with other people they know so it's not like developments that were done in the post-war years when they were kind of low impact and everyone would move there from central cities to uh, the suburbs and there'd be in like an instant community it doesn't work like that anymore I, th- I think in a big block of flats you can be completely anonymous I mean maybe people like that I don't know
1: you feel that it's going to stay that way and that will really continue to be the yeah. way forward for the area. I now. mean if
0: you look at Balfront Tower are you familiar with that building which uh, is by Erno Goldfinger so it's just the other side it's the Brutalist Tower just the other side of the A12 it's the sister building to Trolloc Tower so it's got the lift shaft next to it so his idea there you see uh, I have been in there the views are fantastic because there's nothing else around it but you, you would go in your front door and you would either go down or up but your neighbor would do the opposite so your neighbor was actually on the floor below very interesting and he had the idea of the same as uh, Le Corbusier to have these community rooms every few floors but then I think the actual developer changed that he he li- actually lived there for a few months and he had like an experimental jazz room in the in you know amazing but I don't think it survived what a shame you know so I think the intent of architects is sometimes really good but then the developers scrimp on you know actually using too much of the area for community because they'd be losing out and selling another property wouldn't they and I think that's the way they think it's all about profit isn't it you know generally speaking
1: and I guess with the um obviously with the Thames festival trust all of the heritage projects are to do with the river really I mean what would you do you still say there is an import, you know, an importance of the river to to the area, to the areas, and in, in, in the? I think
0: areas? it could be used a lot more. I mean, if you go to Germany and look at the Rhine, it is so busy, it's yeah. like a motorway. I wouldn't want it that busy. But I suppose if you went back to Dickens' time, there was ten thousand craft a day on the Thames. Can you imagine how busy and also how dirty it would have been? Because most of those would have been steamers by that time. So I, I don't advocate it getting that busy. But um, I think you know extending the river traffic for getting people around town that makes perfect sense doesn't it really you know so i mean look out there is everything going past no and unfortunately the uh, the old police launch you know predator didn't somebody fall off that a few months ago and now it's not taking passengers do you know about this yeah so i used to love that It was two pounds to go across there do you ever use it a uh, little police boat little police launch down there and then um the, the person actually survived they just fell in the river and then they were told that they can't do that anymore so it's still in operation but only for the thames Clippers staff to get from the south of the river to here so i think things like that you know more sort of river crossings don't have to be bridges Little police launches get people here i mean i still haven't been on the um, emirates cable car you know it just doesn't appeal to me it doesn't it goes from nowhere to nowhere you know and they're saying it's a commuting route it's not it's a boris johnson pr stunt
1: Yes, I was actually just about to ask you what you kind of think. Maybe the, the airline and the, and the O2 looking right onto it now, really. Um, as you said, you still think this you'd still be called London's Lost Village. So yeah. I'm guessing you wouldn't we're, say we're, that's done much for the no area, <laughs> no. really.
0: Yeah, but, you know, it'd be, it'd be good to get people here more. I mean, I think at the weekend it sometimes gets busy. I mean, but the, I think the weddings are they're coming in by board more. And I think that's, that's a good thing. So it keeps that sort of separate from the rest of the things that were going on
1: would you still say that the area is um, literally still isolated or would you describe it as more connected?
0: I think it's more connected now with Canning Town, you know, being on the overground, that's, that's really the way I would normally get here. Uh, the DLR, it's unreliable, you know, um, it's, it's outdated, it needs to be refurbished quite majorly. But that's kind of the way into town, isn't it? You know, you've got a bank and then, then you're there. So I think once people discover how easy it is to get around here that we'll come back but I think initially maybe people have reservations it's just too difficult to get to and too far out but it's not really
1: would you like to see the area busy with more people or as more of a residential community I think
0: there's it enough residents probably too many actually so I think that's maybe the way to, I'm just looking out that window and you just can't see anything else but flats can you and I'm looking there and I can't see anything but flats so it's, it's just encroaching everything so much it's kind of overshadowing so maybe it makes creative people more determined to actually make a statement because they're up against this corporate sort of invasion of the sky. You know, I mean, somebody described them as um, safety deposit boxes in the sky. You know, because quite often you buy them and don't live there. It's an investment, and I think in certain parts of Asia, if you're from there, it's actually bad for the feng shui to um, to rent out the building. So you just buy it and keep it there empty. And the amount of people in London who haven't got anywhere to live, or they're living in squalor. And there's a huge imbalance there, isn't there, really, you know.
1: Would you say that that's definitely the kind of general consensus among the creatives in the studio spaces here?
0: Yeah, I think people want to keep this place going, you know. I, I know um, a few people who still live here, three of them. So I think, um, you know, there was a lot more sort of live workspaces here. I think that was a good thing. It's also good for the security overnight if there's people living here, I think. So I, I think, if anything, I'd like to see an expansion of that, the, the live work kind of idea. I think that's that's good for people you know if, if you're um if you're working in the arts you're not always sort of making a good living every month it's sort of hand-to-mouth a lot of the time so if you can combine your workspace and your living space it kind of cuts down on the on the risk you're taking I think you know and also you don't have to commute to work so it's less impact on the environment not it unless you cycle
1: yeah definitely um would you like to share any more about your
0: research or products or anything else? Yeah, so um, do? I did actually do some glass blowing. I'm just going to try and find it. So this, believe it or not, was my first attempt. So it's not too bad, is it? They can go wobbly at the end. So you're, you're heating it up to uh, 1200 degrees and it looks as though the colour is bright orange, but that's just because it is uh, it's so hot. So as it cools down overnight in the kiln, it clears out again. But what you do when you when you get to a certain stage in the shape is you can uh, you can put ground glass color down and then you roll it in that you see, and then you use these tools to create the end. So um, it's kind of exciting and dangerous at the same time. You know, it's, people get quite a kick out of it. And what I really like is is providing it for free. So it's um, provided through public funding and then everybody gets to have a go. Because I think if you go on a glass making course, it's about well, 150, 200 pounds a, a day, you know, it's expensive. Not a lot of people won't afford that. So I like the democratic offer that anybody can turn up and try it. I think that's what, what's important. And also when we do the photography, people always get to keep the piece that they make and they take the glass home. So I think that's something that people feel more part of it, you know, they're not just contributing something that they'll never see again. And then they take it back and share it with the family and it sort of spreads the word about how important it is to uh, understand how things are made because, I mean, everyone's a photographer now. I mean, an iPhone just does all the thinking for you. There's there's so many filters on there you can just do instantly. I mean, sometimes it would take me two or three days to do one photograph, you know, if it was really precise for an advertising campaign. But even then, you know, when you're using film, you were never quite sure what you were gonna get. So I think you sort of tried harder, you know? Whereas when you get a digital picture, you look at it and you go, I'll get rid of that one, I'll do another one. There's also the danger that you're kind of losing memories within that because you're getting rid of something so quickly to accommodate on your, um, on your SD card. Whereas when you were shooting film, you had everything. And you might go back a few, later, a few years later and see a frame and think, well, that was meaningless at the time, but now it means a lot. So I think that's the danger of a lot of things being lost, like carelessly, you know. Is
1: that something you feel strongly about, the preservation of the industries?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, photography is so ethereal now who prints out the pictures very few people you, you know um, print is dying newspapers are going I think magazines are still quite strong but people's personal images I mean what, what's great about looking at a photograph from a certain era is you can almost tell it was taken by the the type of paper the edging and you know whether it's glossy or you know like take, take that one you know that's that's clearly sort of mid 20th century isn't it you know but there's something tangible about that isn't it and you know all the thumbprints on the back and it's it's an object isn't it you know.
1: And speaking about photos, have you seen many of the, of um, Orchard Place and Bow Creek and the area historically?
0: I have, yeah, yeah, with horse, horses and carts. And apparently the uh, speed, the average speed hasn't changed since then, it's still about 11 miles an hour. So it was 11 miles an hour when you had a horse and cart, and now it's 11 miles an hour when you're a car or a motorbike, you know, or, or a bicycle of course, yeah. So uh, some things change, but what does change really? So I, I also think the um, environmental ethos they have here is very important you know trinity boy wolf so that's certainly something that's influenced my own practice by seeing what can be done by taking waste shipping containers and making them into housing or you know offices and i think a lot of people have jumped on the bandwagon with that if you look at box park and all that but this was the very first place to do it as far as i know in the world you know certainly to the extent of you look at container city too it's a beautifully designed architectural piece isn't it you know it's it's magnificent yeah
1: um, Gareth, there anything you can tell me about what's coming up in, in the area?
0: Yeah, we've developed a um, very good relationship now with the GLA. So last year we were part of the Festival of Ideas in London, so we got backing from the Mayor's Make London Fund, so that really helped out. We also got uh, support from Tower Hamlets Council, the innovation fund they're incredibly supportive as well so I, I know people have trouble with some f- local authorities but um, we've we have had nothing but support from uh, from Tower Hamlets really and um, we're also now working on a new educational foundation which I've named after Tommy Flowers so I, th- I thought he was such a good you know example of how you can achieve things no matter what kind of background you're from so that's launching soon we're just in the last throes of getting it fully incorporated and uh, I made a decision to have all the trustees were all going to be female and they're all going to be under 45 because I think the problem with a lot of charities is they're all kind of fusty old pensioners. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that but I wanted it to be a bit more dynamic. So we have got a professor from Queen Mary, we've got um, somebody who runs arts projects with uh, Eurasian companies, uh, countries sorry. and uh, we've got a girl who was working at Arab Architecture and Engineering and then we've also got um, a child psychologist who was at uh, UCL on Great Ormond Street. So it's in very early stages. But we have got our first grant, which is from the GLA, and that is part of the Untold Stories. I don't know if you know anything about that, Do you know? It's only just been launched. I think round two is coming up in October. So that is a department of the GLA called the Commission for Diversity in the Public Realm. So they had a launch for this at the Museum in London uh, about two weeks ago, so we went along. And also the Heritage Fund were there. And um, the Heritage Fund were represented by the person I spoke to last before we got a grant for Cargo. so I thanked her for being so supportive. And what we like about the Heritage Fund is you you actually have a conversation with them even before the grant goes through. You know, the expression of interest gets you a one or two-hour call and they frame exactly what you're trying to do, and they're incredibly helpful. Whereas I found with the Arts Council, you know, there's just... There's no continuity, there's no response, you don't know where you are. And even when the project's running, you're not sure who to contact because there's no actual project manager. It could be one of 500 people that reply. So um, I've sort of gone off working with them. Not that we've ever had much from them. They've just always been very difficult to work with. But the Heritage Fund, I just find, have just got a much better model, really. Yeah. And then you know places like the GLA, I think they're, they're really forward-thinking. They're trying to be very inclusive. Uh, so this Untold Stories will actually span the whole of the the history of of poplar going right back to when i was talking about the mid-14th century up to probably the 1980s which when it really started to change so we're talking about maybe extending that as well by working with different partners so that's that's in the process of happening now and we need to complete the project by the end of march next year so i'm looking at um a character called Queenie Watts so she was a Uh, a jazz singer and an actress she's in the original version of Alfie it's kind of funny that uh you know the main family in EastEnders had the same surname Watts and you know Bromley by Bow Station that's where Walworth is is based on so EastEnders is very embedded here so Queenie used to run a pub on just just up there on the uh, A13 called Ironbridge Tavern so she ran that in the 60s and 70s so you'd have the artist Francis Bacon going there, the actor Richard Burton, you know, people would just go there, you know, because it had such a reputation. So we want to do a mural of her on a, on a local wall to celebrate her, because I think she's been a bit forgotten now as well, you know. So there's all these characters sort of fading off into history when their contemporaries go as well, their memory goes. So I think that's the danger, really, if you don't... Catch it at the time; it's gone forever, really, and that uh, that does a, you know, certainly apply to things like oral histories. If you leave it a bit too late, you find that person's not around anymore. It can be very quick on it, and then you've lost that information unless they kept a big diary or something, which most people don't. So, I think it's good to be really quickly responsive to these uh, kind of opportunities.
1: Yeah, am I right in thinking that the Museum of London Untold um, Stories—that's a lot of oral histories—they're they're going to be doing as well?
0: Yeah, so yeah. it's. Um, it's right across the, the whole of the boroughs, including Havering and Bromley, which I think are the kind of places that need more to be more included. So I looked at, ma- at a map of the places that had been awarded and there was like three in Kensington and nothing really on the edge, you know. So I thought that was, maybe people just aren't aware, is aware of the opportunities perhaps. So that, that would be something to really, really encourage. But I mean, when you look at Newham, that wasn't part of London until 1965. So I think it changed a lot then, didn't it? You know, it was Essex. So literally this was the border other side of the river lee was Essex so maybe that's still part of the mentality to a degree i don't know you know it's just it does feel very different crossing there than maybe going to Whitechapel, travel through london isn't it
1: and you mentioned three three characters but how would you like um poplar's history to be told how do you see that, that being told and shared with the public
0: yeah uh, what we're going to do is um we're going to do a cgi map so that will show different layers of the history of it which so it will be interactive to a degree So certainly in the Second World War, a lot of the streets were lost, so they're kind of forgotten, you know, so we want to bring those back. And also there's this kind of contention over what the new streets are going to be named on these developments, how that will link into the history. So uh, we're talking to Pop Pop the Harker about that, how to kind of engage with that, but then some people won't agree with it, you know, so there's a few stumbling blocks and somebody wants it named that, somebody wants it named that, so the different groups will oppose Ideas, so I don't know how easily that's going to be resolved.
1: And how do you um, think that different groups, maybe with, with with your your work with with students and sixth formers and that how yeah? Can you tell me a bit more about um, you know targeting um, the heritage with with different groups? Really? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, certain groups are more easier to um, to get on board. So, for example, when we were running the pub, of course, you know, none of the uh, Muslims would come in the pub when we were serving alcohol. That's perfectly understandable. But when we were, you know, closed as a pub on, say, a Saturday morning, we'd have the Bangladeshi football team coming in, and we organised some stop-motion animation workshops with one of Tim Burton's uh, lead creators. So he would come in and show them how to make that. So we are engaging that way as well, you see. But certain groups, like the Vietnamese elders, we just can't see a way in there, you know, because we're not part of that group. Um, certainly with the Somalians, we've had a lot of a uh, lot of interaction with them. They seem a lot more easy, to easy, and, you know, open to ideas. So they would come along to the workshops that we were doing. But there are certain groups that are kind of keep themselves to themselves. So that's that's harder to sort of penetrate, really, yeah. Much as we'd like to, you know, we don't want to feel like we're sort of parachuting into a community and then going again which is why we like to work in places for a few years really rather than just a few weeks or months. So um, where we set up the pub you see so I've now handed that over to local residents so it's kind of created employment for a few people which is great. We've got the next door unit on Aberfeldy Street which is the old post office so we're using that as a creative making space so all kinds of things are going on there. And, you know, it was supposed to be knocked down two years ago, the whole road was supposed to go, but what with, you know, COVID and Brexit, and we've now got it until the new year. So we are looking around at other possibilities, whether it's going to be in East London or another area, we're just going to have to see, really, you know, what, what is the best for us. Uh, but I'm still very interested in doing work here, you know, now that we've um, come back, really, after a bit of a hiatus. and and really enjoyed it and had a great reception I have to say you know it was very well received what we were doing so that just inspires you to do more doesn't it when you get that sort of feedback
1: and for you personally actually I mean obviously you've done quite extensive maybe family history research but um, how easy has it been for you to research the area in terms of Sources and what you've
0: been able to find or talking to other people? Yeah, I mean, we we have been to Tower Hamlet's archives, but we we did find actually the pub was a great resource. So we had um, a guy upstairs, uh, Bob Murphy, he was 80. He used to work at the gas works on Levin Road. So he was doing quite a lot of work with um, somebody who was doing a PhD, I think it was at Goldsmiths as well, on social anthropology. So uh, that ended up sort of being almost facilitated by the pub because they met there and um, Robert Deakin who was the, um, who was doing his PhD he was going to do it on the whole of Poplar and then he saw what we were doing on that particular street and sort of moved his focus onto that so it was great to be able to sort of foster that kind of thing going on you know just by being there and being open to ideas so I think the worst thing we could have done was open up a gallery you know we had the guy coming into the pub in the early days saying, "You're not doing any of that archish, are you?" "Oh no, no, we'd never do that." Six months later, we started doing it, but really subtly, you know, so nobody really noticed. So I think that the pub being such a democratic place, you know, that everybody goes to, I think it was the ideal way to do to do this um, disguised kind of uh, creative project, you know. So it was a, it was a pub, but it had a lot more behind it if you sort of looked a little bit further, you know.
1: Would you say that? Um, the community, and I mean, maybe in terms of the the um, creative spaces here, are generally interested in the history and the heritage. Here in
0: Trinity yeah. Wharf, yeah, yes, I think certain people are. I would say generally yes, yeah. Um, some people aren't interested, and I, I found when I was here, there was there were certain people who would engage with you, others who just got on with the work, and uh, well, that's fine. You know, it's 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 absolutely cool. But I think this is a it's a perfect place to do this kind of work because you know just being here amongst all of these buildings and the, the newer sort of developments around it, it's, it it feels like it's a sort of a bastion of something which needs to be preserved really you know and, and fought for and kept
1: yeah definitely and i mean with the obviously the, the river um, quite literally hasn't hasn't changed i guess maybe maybe as i mentioned earlier you have a yeah kind of a vision of how it how it might have once been and compared right like, that could probably go for the docklands really as a whole along
0: the river yeah I suppose it must have been a shock for a lot of families who you know all of the certainly all the male workers would, would be involved with the docks I mean, maybe a lot of the women, women workers there as well you know so having that taken away I think was um, it was quite quick as well wasn't it you know so it, people had to look for other employment so they were sort of I guess starting to feel a bit isolated from their family line of history you know because certainly their predecessors would have all worked in those kind of industries but I mean it happened all over the country you know we are post-industrial Nation, not we really? We don't really make anything, you know. We're just service industries, which I find pretty sad, really. You know, that's all we do.
1: Could we go back a bit and actually you'll, um, talk a bit about your interest in street names? Have you done much about that in this in this area?
0: Yes, so I'm, I'm starting on in this area. But um, the first one I did was where I grew up. So I grew up on a on a big uh, council estate in South Shields. And all the streets were named after famous writers, you see. So I grew up on Ruskin Crescent. I didn't know who Ruskin was until I was 25. So um, I left in 1984, and then 30 years later, I went back and did this project where I got the current residents to look at, you know, who their street was named after. Some quite obscure writers as well. But what was interesting in the late 70s is as all the industry started closing, I don't know if this was deliberate by somebody who had a sense of humor at the uh, town hall, that like they started naming the streets after dystopian writers like Orwell and Huxley. You know, it was almost like it was like becoming a <laughs> no-go an area, and it did to a degree. So, um, just you know, sort of slightly going off on a tangent. Um, so, I was working at my school, and actually, I set up uh, a photographic studio in a shipping container because I saw that, I thought that linked to the history of trade. And I would get people to come in. I'd photograph them with something they represented their passion in life, and then they would choose um, a quote from the writer on the street that they named, uh, on which they lived, sorry. Um, and then that was, uh, that was exhibited, and it was part of a big BBC um, programme as well, so it got a lot of publicity. So that was a big Arts Council, Creative People and Places um, initiative called Cultural Spring, which was between Sunderland and uh, my area of, of South Tyneside. So I think that sort of put the, put the seed in my mind about what could be investigated about certain areas and how the names develop, really sometimes you know the name gets sort of abstracted over the years and changed and you're not quite sure of the origins of it you know so um it's poplar called poplar because there was loads of poplar trees here are the dogs was there loads of dogs there so i don't know if you've seen the giant chihuahua have you at Old Street, old sense dlr have you not seen that so we commissioned that you see it's uh, nine stories high so um we were thinking of something which represented an area that was thought as being sort of small and in- insignificant which a lot of people think poplar is because if you think where it's between the you know the gleaming towers of canary wharf and the redevelopment of stratford poplar's in a sort of like trough in the middle isn't it you know so we decided to paint this giant chihuahua on this side of a, a block of flats and people were thinking well why did you put it there and i said well it's facing barking and it's next to the isle of dogs
1: um, speaking of names as well, do you think that the history of um, kind of evidence of trade and empire is still very um, prominent here?
0: There's not so many statues of slave traders around here, I, I don't know many. I mean there's a street named after Samuel Plimsel, you know about the Plimsel line on um, on a ship, but it seems to be quite scattered around Poplar, I think there's there's a lot of um, streets named after parts of China, uh, Canton, places like that, but there doesn't seem any sort of real structure to it and I think there's a few named after famous um, suffragettes but it seems sort of scattered across the area there's no real sort of thinking gone into it as far as I can see. I mean you've got I suppose the um, places named after Spices you know you've got, the, got all those streets on you. but that seems a little bit a little bit corporate. <laughs> uh,
1: do you think that the, the docks um more generally and the kind of heritage of the doctors preserved or entrusted enough?
0: Yeah but a lot of things have been lost so I don't know if you know much about the Normandy landings when they made these Mulberry Harbours so the the water leading into Normandy is very shallow so you couldn't get big ships close to the sea which is why they were all coming in on landing craft so once they'd uh, secured the the beachheads what they did was they got these Um, floating harbors actually made out of concrete believe it or not concrete floats if it's got enough air underneath it and they built those in um, what what is now the Nature Park where you see East India and then they dragged them over to uh, Normandy assembled them and then the troops the second wave of troops could get off a big ship and just walk rather than having to go in the water or get onto a landing craft so that kind of thing happened here who knows about that I think there's a lot of hidden histories and that's what we're trying to unveil through the untold stories so um I'm kind of interested into what people come up with really you know so I think there's a lot of things I don't know about this area I know a little bit about it but there's, there's a lot of things that are kind of just personal histories that are as important as the sort of general history aren't they you know
1: yeah what are the kind of questions that you're kind of seeking to answer
0: well yeah it's like um that's that's a big question <laughs> I don't Sorry. know it's the, it's the, uh, I think I'll leave that one open and see what happens rather than prescribing I think I'll go for sort of reaction yeah I think I think we find that you know that um, instead of sort of imposing a program on people, it's like we ask them what they want, then we respond to that. We can't always do it, but we'll try to. And I think then people, the, the stakeholders and that sort of idea are on there rather than just being, you know, viewers of somebody else's work. And that's why we like people to participate in what we do, to make things, to get off the mobile phones and use the hands and learn a new skill, perhaps you know, or at least get some confidence in actually working creatively don't know where that's going to lead do you know
1: yeah what is the kind of importance and um, the real kind of benefits to you of, of 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 going out and seeking people's personal histories as kind of an a- approach to researching an area
0: yeah well i think they overlap quite a lot as well though. so people will have a sort of commonality of memory won't they, and certain things that have been big news but even those might have been lost in the midst of time you just don't know do you but then i think it's yes so that's, that's another thing i should mention actually we've been working with the London College of Fashion So we've been getting people to create their migration histories using textiles. Yeah, so it's either people who've moved to this country as adults or they've been born here to immigrants. And that's been really successful. All women as well, yeah. So we're hoping to work with them more. So, you know, the London College of Fashion is moving to East London. So the V&A is setting up a um, a big site there as well. So, you know, rather than just sort of... Uh, Taking advantage of the low land values compared to Kensington or wherever the best Oxford Circus is to actually give something back and get people involved. So we are talking about, you know, a chandelier going into the V&A that's been created by people around here. So that's just an idea. I mean, I, I'm not sure when the V&A East is opening. It's probably 18 months away or something, isn't it? Yeah. But it's good to get these things in there before um, somebody else steals the idea, which does happen. <laughs>
1: Um, is there anything, yeah, anything else that you would like to add or you feel like we haven't covered?
0: Let me just have a look. So, um, yeah, I should mention the Isle of Dogs History group because I went down there and met them. They were very receptive to, to hearing about what was going on here. So not many of them had actually been here. Uh, it's a group of about, well, 30 people meeting in a, quite a large community, centered down by Mud Chute in uh, the Isle of Dogs. And um, one of them, uh, John, came over here took part in the blowing. Turns out he worked here in the 1970s and 80s, I think, mainly at the gatehouse. So he told me a lot about Trinity Ballworth that I didn't know about, you know. And in fact, when we were working in Studio 2, which is the electrician shop where the campaign for drawing used to be, he said that used to be the foreman's office. And I was standing in there just watching everybody making sure that we were working without realising that that used to be the foreman's office. So that was pretty interesting. I think one of the things I found really interesting is, you know, this place is, is made from containers. But that's really what took the romance away from shipping, really, because you're, you're in port now for a matter of a day. Everything is offloaded. You get the new containers on. Before containers, the holds had to be completely cleaned out uh, before the, the new cargo went in there. And you were there for, for weeks, so you would get to know the port. You might even meet somebody and get married. You know, who knows? So I think it's, it's changed the whole idea of... Um, of going to sea i don't think it would appeal to me now whereas i think if it had been in the old days it would have been a great excuse to escape wouldn't it really you know but now it's just it's too quick like a lot of life it's just moved into being too fast i think really so uh it's about the only good thing about getting older is you feel more relaxed about things
1: um, <laughs> speaking of the, of the containers as well would you say that that's quite prominent and that um that's kind of all over London a lot now I mean in places like Brickstone and Shoreditch that are kind of not necessarily on water um,
0: that's true yeah Yeah, you know that this really is and you said it was yeah so this uh, has more relevance doesn't it of course yeah I hadn't thought about that but you know after the big earthquake in Christchurch in New Zealand a lot of the emergency housing was made from shipping containers so I think people are repurposing all over the world and I think it's it's just the perfect solution for quick building isn't it really you just have to sort of you know change the inside a bit to make it a bit more comfortable. But I think it's, you know, rather than just rusting away on a wharf, why not make them into something interesting? So yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And I think one of, one of the guys involved in making them is from New Zealand. He comes over here. He certainly came over to do uh, Container City too, but he would love to ask Eric about that. For more information on our projects and events, head to thamesfestivaltrust.org, supported by National Lottery Heritage Fund and Royal Dogs.